a Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, Aaron Noonan, great to have you with me. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. Of course, Repco is driven by passion, so are we celebrating their 100th anniversary this year. Visit repco.com.au. Now, my guest on the podcast this week is a guy who, well, he deliberately, as he describes in this chat, moves in the shadows. He's not one seeking the limelight, and that's why you really haven't heard a great deal from him, and that's exactly why I wanted to get him on the podcast. Sven Burkhartz is the team co-owner of Tickford Racing. He's partnered with Rod Nash in that squad. He's a long-time motorsport competitor uh, in terms of Porsche racing. He's raced in TCM. He's raced in Australian GT. He created um, the Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge. It is now the Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge. It's the second tier to uh, Carrera Cup. He's got a really unique lens of Australian motorsport as a competitor, as a team co-owner, but also as a lawyer because that's his day job and he deals a lot with uh, motorsport, motoring and automotive related matters. So I thought this was a good chance to have a chat to a guy who A, has great stories, B, is a great chat and C, you haven't heard a great deal about. And that's one of the things we love to do with this podcast is to inform you, tell you some things or uh, open you up to people who you probably haven't heard of before or you haven't heard much from or about and you can learn some more and gain some more insight. That's what we're all about on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. So buckle up, sit back, relax, and enjoy Sven Burkhardt's on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. Sven, this is the first time I've ever done a V8 Sleuth Podcast in a lawyer's office. I feel like I'm in trouble, but I'm not, am I? <laughs> no, you're safe in my hands, Aaron. <laughs> Just be comfortable. This won't hurt a bit, yeah, as they say. I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Mate, we've got so much to talk about because there's so many – elements of your involvement in motorsport as a competitor, as a, a partner in Tickford Racing. Um, where's the motorsport car thing come from for you? We know you for your Porsche racing and a bit of TCM and partner in Tickford, but where does this all go back to? Uh, my mother. It's her um, fault. It's her fault. She, is, um, she was a motorsport fan from the get-go. So the first Porsche I ever saw was my mum had borrowed her boss's old orange 911 and for the weekend saying look can I drive this what she didn't tell him was that uh, she'd entered into a ADAC tarmac rally and um <laughs> and competed what um, was this well I was so this is late 60s and um so I was six or seven um and so she she's done this come back and I remember seeing this Porsche come in and then mum went away for the weekend and mum came back and the Porsche disappeared and that was the end of it until a few years later she told me about it and um, she won and she got the gold medal. And <laughs> and in fact, um, the, the gold medal came out in 2007. It had been sitting in her drawer for a while um, because when I won the Porsche Cup or the um, Porsche Drivers Challenge in Australian GT, um, she said, I think it's time that I gave you my gold medal. So oh. she came out. So she is she is the she's the reason for the motorsport interest. She when I was fourteen, she did something completely illegal and let me drive her Toyota Corolla station wagon down. What a beast! Oh yeah, no, twelve hundred cc's of raw power, Aaron. Um, <laughs> but um, that got me that got my head into cars. And I remember the first car magazine I bought was a nineteen seventy four Modern Motor and had a nine thirty turbo on the cover. 
and it was actually on the same trip that mum let me drive the the Corolla so I thought white Corolla wagon white 930 yeah. join the dots same, there's same. A, there's something to, to aim for so yeah it's her fault she's a crazy motorsport person she uh, lives down the island so for, for a lot of years um, hosted and had MotoGP teams staying at her house. Oh, gold. And they'd take her to the track and she'd, you know, be mum to them and, um, you know, she goes and she still stays up and watches all the Formula One Grand Prix and she's, oh, 85. So, Good effort. So, yeah, I think Some it, of those uh, are really late. I don't even <laughs> sit up for those. No, nah, she's not got a lot to do, Aaron, like seriously. Oh, that's okay. That's, that's still commitment to the <laughs> motorsport task. She that's... absolutely loves it. Rings me up and goes, oh, did you see? No. Nah. <laughs> I, I was in bed. <laughs> yeah, and I haven't caught up yet, Mum, but yeah, tell me what happened. <laughs> what was the first race car, first road or first road car before that? So my first road car, keeping on the theme of raw power, mm. is it was a um what was oh it was a Toyota Celica, nineteen eighty nineteen seventy four Toyota Celica, a Ooh. white one. Ooh. Um that was great. And I was working at a servo at the time, so I had the opportunity to fiddle with it. So I, when I blew the motor up, as you inevitably do as a young man, um, I went down to the wreckers and bought a Toyota, Toyota Corona 2-litre, which I <clears throat> inexpertly shoved in the front, and it was a bit tall, so I had to ease the, the bonnet up with a hammer to get the carby to clear. <laughs> um, but that was the first car, and I loved it, actually. I, I spent three years saving up for it. I started working at a servo when I was 15 and and um, got my licence on my 18th birthday. Mum had bolted the P-plate on. She was a confident woman. <laughs> and um, and so that was the first car. And did, did just going back, did the boss – I forgot to ask this before. Did the boss ever know what happened with the Porsche? No. It, uh, it <laughs> No. No, mum's mum's a bit cagey. I love it. It's the best story I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's my mum. She's a, she's a bit of a unit. So, how do you go from uh, working the servo <clears throat> to getting on a path to law? Well, I um, I needed to fund my law degree, so mm. um, so I had to work full time. So um, once I once I I kept working at the servo for about three years, but at the same time I worked at the local pub. So I got to know everyone local because everyone has to buy beer and True. everyone has to buy petrol. True. Um, so, yeah, I kept working and and the servo was good to me. And then um, uh, when I was 21, sort of two years out from it, I stopped, just worked at the pub. Um, and whereabouts is, is this? Where'd you grow Emerald, up in the Danong Ranges. Yeah. So lived there since the mid-70s and um, then continued to live there after I did all that. But, uh, yep, that's – and that actually fueled my real interest in cars because – the boss was really good to me. He let me work on my car um, or the cars because I, I have a habit of changing them with monotonous <laughs> regularity. So the, the car after that was another Celica and then I went big and I bought, I bought the Falcon GXL vinyl black roof gold, but it got the genie extractors, the drop pipes. It's the, got, it got stuff. The 12 slotters, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, the 650 Holly double pump. Uh, yeah, because I worked at a servo, so I got a good deal on the petrol, so I mm. didn't care. You know? So <laughs> at that point I wasn't an environmentalist because it consumed copious amounts of petrol. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me about the the law. The law I hate the word. It sounds so um, reality TV. The law journey is sort of – I can't frame it any other way, but um, you're at Kalaskini Intellects now. Yeah. How, how, how have you – We've got heaps of motorsport to talk about, yeah. but I'm interested in this side of it because it all blends together. Yeah. But how do you end up going from 
studying law? What's the, I mean, I have never studied law, will never study law. What's the process and how do you end up where you're sitting today? So, yeah, I went uh, – the, the, the law journey actually started in year 11 when uh, I did legal studies and for my mind – had, I've got an aptitude for it, the way, to th- the way it thinks, um, the way I solve problems. So I got, I got interested in the law when I was in year 11 and did year 12 and that really coloured how I dealt, dealt with year 12 because back then you had to get a reasonable – and like now, I suppose, get some reasonable marks to get in. So I worked like a lunatic during year 12, basically shut myself off from the world for 12 months to get the marks that I thought I needed to get, which I was lucky enough to get. I went to Monash. I could have got into Melbourne, but Monash was down the road from where I lived, so it was an easier commute because I was still working. So mm. I couldn't go into Melbourne and then come back and work. So, so five years at, at Monash. Um, I did two law degrees um, at the time, and then you go out and you're effectively an article clerk, which is an apprentice. So you do a, a year um, at a law firm doing your articles. It's now called traineeship. You get your ticket and then they let you loose on the world, which is probably the scariest thing that ever happens to a 23-year-old because, um, <clears throat> because yeah, at that stage you know three-fifths of the proverbial and you're seriously dangerous. You shouldn't, the, <laughs> shouldn't be giving legal advice as a 23-year-old, but you get to, which is a bit odd. But um, I had very good supervisors. I did a year or two uh, doing pretty heavy criminal law work. I left the firm that I was at and ended up working at a firm that did a lot of pretty heavy crime, which was the best thing ever happened because I was green as grass after my articles year and that sort of drummed the, drummed the naivety out of me. Um, and yeah, came back to my firm that I actually did my articles with and was there for effectively a total of 23 years. In 2011, I left, um, thought about retiring, had the ability to, but, you know, at 48, seriously, you've got a bit of gas in the tank. So <laughs> I took three or four days off and started my own practice. Which the is whole the three or four days. whole that's three all. or four <laughs> days. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it was 30th of June because that's when you finish your, your, your partnership. Um, had the rest of the week off. I'd already organised an office. That's where the intellect comes from um, um, because a mate of mine, uh, he and I went to the Royal Saxon, I think it's called the Royal Saxon in Richmond. Yep. And, 14 million beers in, came up with a name and a, and a business plan. And uh, so I had a pretty solid restraint um, after I left that firm. But I, uh, my, my journey was basically I was a disputes lawyer, litigation lawyer, and still am, do a lot of that. Uh, ended up running a really big team. And as you do, relationships and things change. So I left, they wrote me a big check. They said, now you only can do this for three years. I said, that's fine, that's all I want to do. Um, I met Henry and Jonathan through a mutual contact and in 2013 we created this place. Mm. And the where I was, we built it from 80 people to 370 inside oh, probably six or eight years and I'd had enough of a really big business so I was determined to see if we could do something really cool with a boutique, no more than 40, maybe 50 people and mm. we've managed to achieve that. So well, it sounds easy but um, it's fun. I still love what I do. I really enjoy it. Part of that boutique element is the motorsport connection. Yep. So what sort of stuff do people in motorsport come to you with? I mean, it's, it, when you think about it, quite often people go, oh, lawyer, motorsport, uh, well, contract disputes, negotiations. But nah. it's drivers, it's teams, it's series, it's manufacturers, it's sponsorship deals, it's contract. Like there's a long list of stuff here and that's why <laughs> if you're boutique 
you know, for a certain area and you can specialise in it, there's plenty of stuff around. Because yeah, there there's is. always someone in motor racing disagreeing with somebody else. It's the beauty of the sport, isn't it, Aaron? Yes. Like, um, <clears throat> but the yeah, the reality is motorsport is a business and um, and it's also a hobby, it's also a passion, and it can be all three for some people. So um, the, the motorsport side of things um, is driven by um, – driven by my passion for it. So <clears throat> I got into it in the late 90s because uh, I was doing reasonably well and thought, you know, I pushed my way into partnership just before I was 30 and decided to reward myself. So I bought a, an earlier 911 and went out to a track day, had a bit of fun. Six weeks later, the guts was hanging out of it. The suspension was being done, the brakes. And, you know, that was been, it's been a roller coaster since then. But um, the reason I, I've, I do a lot of motorsport is because I do a lot of work for people in business and people are associated with it. And and like anything, people want to deal with people who have got a similar interest, who they share some connection with and who gets the industry. So, you know, I've been right through the club system, then started um, doing a race GTs, ran the GT3 Cup Challenge or Sprint Challenge as it was for three years. Um, and, and the reason people come to you is because they don't need to educate you. So... Having, for instance, if somebody's in front of the stewards um, or the the appeal process in CAMS, or as it then was, it's always good to know that the person that's working for you has also been the, down the same roads. I've spent some quality time in the stewards room. <laughs> uh, I have been down the odd appeal. Um, know exactly what it feels. Like. 100%. Yeah, I hundred percent. I know that I know what you're going through because yeah, look, when I when you do as much motorsport as I have, there's the affinity, and and um, and people come to you saying, look. I don't need to educate you. I don't need to tell you what subregs are. I don't need to tell you what driver contracts are. I don't need to tell you how to structure a, a sponsorship deal or negotiate one. So a lot of the work that I do actually isn't about disputes and it, it really isn't. The, the The work that I do is far more constructive than that. It's about, you know, employment law, hiring hiring drivers, hiring mechanics, hiring the, the, the person who drives the truck, um, right through to buying things, buying assets, buying and selling teams. Um, you know, I act for some people overseas. I act for a lot of people locally. Um, but motorsport, it's because I know it and people know that I know it. So generally they come to me. I mean, I don't do all the motorsport work in Australia at all. Mm, mm. Uh, but uh, what I do get to do is just really, really enjoyable. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. How did you end up becoming a part owner of Tickford Racing? Because when people think of that team, of course, it was FPR, Pro Drive, Tickford Racing. Yep. Uh, clearly, there was a sale. I think it's pretty much 10 years. Next year, I think it is, that Rod Nash and Rusty French became involved. How did you get involved in all that and why did you get involved in all that? So that's an example of um, what I just said. <clears throat> so I get this call. I'm in my little practice, just me and one lawyer after I've left the old place, and the phone rings. And, um, uh, well, it actually happened this way. I first met Rod and Tim Edwards when Reynolds was exiting Kelly's uh, which wasn't terribly pleasant. I and do I recall to, that, yeah. I had to manage that very carefully. Um, there was obviously some people quite annoyed um, and some people who wanted him. So I dealt with that for David um, 
and we managed that quite carefully. And I was very, very open and very direct with with Rod and Tim as to what I was prepared to do and what David was safely able to do. So that was the introduction, but they were on the other side and you know, that happened and it, it worked for a while. Um, but as a result of that, I got a call out of the blue 2012, I think it is, um, saying, oh, it's Rod Nash here. Um, yep, how you going? Good. And I thought, shit, there's a problem with Dave. And no, it wasn't. Um, this tells me, yep, there's the opportunity to buy it. Um, and, you know, here's the deal. This is parameters. Can you help put it together? They've done all the contracts. So we just want you to handle our side of the transaction and, and also help put the, the relationship documents between Rusty and Rod together. So did that. Uh, it was actually a fun time because at the same time I got a call out of the blue uh, from um, a, a guy who was working at Erebus and it was when, when Betty bought the stones out. So I was running both transactions at the same time. Um, and um, It's all going on. It's, it's all, all going on. Like it from, from, you know, from zero to hero inside sort of two months. But what was interesting was I got to compare the – the transactions and how they were being managed and how they were being run and all the DD. For instance, Rod had been a part and a customer of FPR forever, so he didn't have to do much DD. He knew how the joint ran. And DD is due diligence. Yes, due yep. diligence, right. So, um, uh, But it was a different thing for Betty. This was a new thing for her, so you know, I got to – I went up – it was actually the uh, – uh, the Gold Coast round, I went up there a few days earlier and sat down with the Stones and went through the due diligence process. Um, but, yeah, it was – I remember ringing Rod up about something. I said, listen, I know you've got good lawyers. Why why'd you come to me? And he goes, well, because I don't have to educate you. You know, you're 80 90% down the road. You know how recs work. You know how driver contracts work. You know how sponsorship agreements work. You know all of that sort of stuff. So it's a no-brainer. Mm. So anyway, I did that deal and um, uh, Rod said, sit on the advisory board with us. And in, uh, and I did. Helped them out, just talked to them about, you know, the, the running the business governance and um, someone – Rod's always really been good to try and get people around him that can help him think. Um, so that's what I did. And in 2015, uh, he rang out of the blue and said, oh, listen, we know you've been going through this ownership thing. We've been talking and uh, do you want to own a slice? And I've gone, yeah, right. <laughs> you know. That easy? Yeah. I thought, oh, I better talk to my wife. Um, <laughs> so I told her that I'd done the deal as opposed to was thinking about doing the deal. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, always So safer. beg for forgiveness rather than seek permission. It's worked my entire life. Right? Like, <laughs> Why change now? <laughs> yeah, when you're on a good thing, as they say. So, um, so that's what happened and um, – and, yeah, that, that's when I became an owner. I was actually looking at this yesterday because I thought this question might come up. So it was around April 2015 that it all started to happen, I think. And now we're in 2022, so it's pretty much seven years. Yeah. So what do you – are you are you passive? Are you hands-on? Are you when, – when they need you, what, what's your what's oh. your role at Tickford? Because I think a lot of our, our listeners and supercar fans, when they think of Tickford Racing owner, they probably think Rod first, yep. Rusty second, and then a few people go – Who's the other guy? Yeah. So what, what's are you deliberately in the background a little bit more? Um, or is well, it time now, or what's the scenario? Yeah. Look, the, the answer is I've always been passive. The the fact is that between Rod and Tim and the management team, both commercial and racing, they know exactly what they're doing, right? So um, my mine is is not deliberately more anonymous, um, but I've got no business telling them how to do their thing. Um, I talk I talk to Rod about. You know, the, the future of the business, how we structure it, opportunities, 
Um, so I, I am involved in all the major decisions. Um, but as far as the sporting and the commercial customer sponsor facing stuff, that's not for me. I mean, the odd, the odd person comes through me if I introduce someone. But, um, but yeah, certainly, uh, and when, when Rusty was an owner, because uh, he's not anymore, um, that was he was also very supportive of Rod um, and had great connections. So it, it, it worked and still works very cohesively. So, you know, I, I turned up to the odd race meeting, but um, uh, really I've got nothing to offer, seriously. If I look at cars, <laughs> they go I say, slow. Yeah, let's just, just do those rear springs, mate, because, uh, <laughs> you know, if there's anyone that's got an ability to tune speed out of a car, it's me. Um, <laughs> hey, it's a great skill. It's, 100%. It's, there's a lot of people around with that ability. Well, I, now, I that probably my boy, assist. now that my boys are karting, they just will not let me near it. Um, Smart boys already. Yeah, Smart yeah, boys already. They've cotton on fast. So <laughs> yeah, my involvement is um, my involvement is um, very active within the business, but outside is not something I seek. You know, people know, but it happens by osmosis rather mm. than you know trumpeting it. At, mm. You know, the the fact that I'm a part owner is buried on the website, and if people go that far, they're probably bored. Um, <laughs> really, what what I want what I want for the business is to pe- the people that run it, the, the face of it to do their job. Yeah. I've got no business being in their face about it. They, I, they know me and I know them and I, I walk around the workshop and talk um, talk shit with them as you do um, and as you should do because it's motorsport. It's all about talking shit. It um, is. <laughs> so I got over 200 episodes of proof. <laughs> exactly uh, right. This is the end of the era for the current cars. Gen mm. 3 comes on board next year. Yeah. Any chance you could have a little steer before. Have you had a steer of one of your team's cars before? No, I well, I haven't. think you're going to have to have a go at the yeah. end of the year, we're keep we're, we're keeping a couple, I think. Um, I've never – that's the other thing I've never had the desire to do because um, there's two reasons. One, I'd probably end up coming off looking like a complete plonker. Um, and secondly, I have too much respect for the gear itself because I would absolutely mash it, I'm sure. <laughs> Look, I think it's um, – I actually have had a, a, a drive of a, a car. I once bought an old ex-Larry car that was a – it was – when I bought it, it was a VS, but it was a VP Castrol car and it featured at, um, featured at Bathurst once and I thought I'll do some sort of little ride day business and I had a go of it at Calder um, and that sort of cured me because it's pretty raw bit of gear um, and the Larry tower got really hot. The Tower of Power. The Tower of Power. With all the buttons. Um, Yep, with all the buttons, none of which I knew and which I was very much instructed, don't touch the bloody (laughs) thing. So, yeah, I I wouldn't mind a steer but, um, you know, when when the only opportunity you would get to do that is, for instance, if there's a test. No, ride day, end of the year ride day. Just don't put anyone in for the ride. Yeah. Because you're going for the ride. Yeah, except there'll be people with cameras (laughs) and, you know, it'll just, you know, what it's all about. I think I'd like to one day. It's not a burning passion. I still go racing and I've got a race car or race cars that I I get that out on. But, you know, frankly, um, I know how to drive Porsches. The guys that do that, they know how to drive it. Um, Am I curious about it? Yes, but I know that they'll look at the data and, <laughs> and, and they've got content for years. <laughs> 100%. Look at the Bosco, talks a good game. <laughs> Stick to the legal profession, mate. 100%. Stick to the legal. That's the answer. Have you ever found yourself in a situation, do you act for other supercar teams? Yep. Yep. Is that tricky sometimes? Um, no. Um, I've, had, I've had a couple of conflict situations arise involving teams and drivers that I've, I've helped in the past, primarily drivers, but... No, the the other teams that I've acted for and still do from time to time, I I say to them, 
look, yeah, okay. Um, and it's actually a really important and quite um, sounds crazy, but wonderful part of what I've been able to achieve, and that is that somebody who's a rival team owner, talking about Betty and you know, and others, you know, did some work for for Techno, um, that they trust me enough that I will see the inner deals. Mm. Um, mm. But all the numbers, all the details, because as a lawyer, sometimes you, yeah. a, a couple of times I said, "Look, I need to see this driver contract, but I want you to blot out anything, that anything needs to be that, that out. I shouldn't see because yep. I can't unsee it. Yep. And if something happens in the future, I do not want you to think that you know that that bit of information was a useful bit of information. Look, driver contracts and sponsor contracts are pretty much of a muchness. The, the guts of them are all the same. The the, the boilerplate's all the same. Ultimately, it's about the financial aspects of the deal mm. and the, and its duration. So, I have said, look, I'll need to see X Y Z driver contract. Blot out the the term. Blot out the renewal options. Blot out the numbers, because all I need to see is what I'm talking about. Um, but I think it's it's good. It's uh, it's um, it's good and it's gratifying that other team owners trust me enough mm. to to do that for them. Right down to helping them sell or buy teams. Or Rex, or you know, mm. um, uh, teams racing charters—they're called now. Yeah, um, I can get my head around that. TRCs. Yeah, it's yeah. easy to say. Rex um, franchises. Rex. Yeah, yeah. But um, again, that's an example. It's a very curious structure that um, that supercars operates in. It's a it's a it's a very interesting amalgam of franchising and licenses, and uh, particularly when the previous ownership was was some team, some Archer. So. Um, uh, no is the answer. Um, the only conflict that can arise is one where you don't maintain your integrity and mm. and you you talk out of school and uh, and I don't and and others know that. Mm. And um, if you did, you would have been found out by now. Hundred percent. And look, I, I'm, and I'm sure that um, I'm sure that that also prevents some people coming to me because they they don't know me and I don't I don't criticise them for that. Um, so there's work that I won't get because people perceive actually, you know, you're an owner at Tickford and therefore I don't want you to see the inner workings. But I do I still do a lot of work for Career Cup teams, Super 2 teams, all the drivers that go around with sponsors, suppliers, all that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, there's plenty to do. Mm. And and frankly, at the at that sort of level where there's buying and selling of teams or well, teams and teams racing charters, that doesn't happen that much. There's a It's a pretty tightly held very tightly held mm. um, um, business now because people understand it's it's incredibly valuable, it's important, you shouldn't turn it over. Everyone that owns uh, a team now is in, in my perspective anyway, is in there for the long haul. Mm. There's no journeyman. You know, there's people that have come in and made it better and improved it or changed it, but, yeah, it's not a regular market. Mm. So It's a different world. It's a, 100%. It's a different and, the, world. and the new car... Um, presents all sorts of challenges and opportunities, um, but it's part of a natural progression. The current cars then go down to Super Two teams. Um, you know, t- team like Tickford, we've got massive capability with engine shops and prepreg and fab and um, and the um, the machine shop. So uh, that all that all subsides a little bit more, but that's part of the the future. We're repurposing that capability and providing services and a lot of our old cars are out there so we still provide you know backup and engineering for them could you move because the the nature of gen 3 with the way that 
the cars are going to be the the engine suppliers or a, it's a single source for each side of the fence. Yeah, uh, t- some of the things that you would normally do for yourself, you can't do for yourself in that world. So how are you going to repurpose those capabilities? I mean, customer work for other types of racing. You're going to build other cars. You're going to run other cars. Anything and everything to to, to keep all those people in a gig. Well, look, all of that at the end of the day, exploring Tickford's exploring. Um, some other categories, um, but those cars do find a home. And so those people need support services, certainly probably from the, not the development side, um, but but from the support side. So parts, um, engine rebuilds that they can do or don't want to do, you know, dampers, um, anything that they need built, we can still do. Mm. If they want to do some development, we've got a great engineering team. So as far as Tickford's concerned, the, the composition and structure and the people in it and are going to stay the same. There's not going to be in changes of a wholesale nature. We're not going to close down whole divisions. It's important that, you know, if you're going to look at it from a business point of view, and that's where I have probably a little bit more input, let's let's maintain the talent, let's maintain it, but let's, re, let's reset it into other markets that exist um, or markets that we can create or tell people that we can actually do this. And mm-hmm. it doesn't matter, for instance, um, we're looking at uh, on from the engineering and fabricating side of things. There's uh, government work. You'd think it's got nothing to do with motorsport, um, but it's got everything to do with engineering. Mm. So when you when you pair it back, um, Tickford, like a lot of like the bigger teams, it's actually an engineering business that goes racing. Mm. So um, uh, and racing will always be the majority and the, the important part of what we do. But there's a lot of work and a lot of talent that can now be redeployed and will be to the people that we sell cars to, the people that want to come to us. Um, but as I said, there's a whole lot of talent and ability to build things which may never appear on a race car. Mm. You know, could mm. appear on a tank. Could yeah. appear on yeah. an aeroplane. Could be anywhere. Could be anything. Yeah. 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 Could appear on my car. Could make it go slow. Yeah. <laughs> if I've got something to do with it, it's definitely going to go slower. Without um, obviously divulging any secrets, you, we talked about some of the things that you've been involved in, you know, selling of some of those teams. Um, yep. The Dave Reynolds scenario was well publicised at the time. Mm. What are some of the other cases or things that people will have probably read in the, the motorsport magazines over the journey that you've you've been involved in and, and had proximity to? A lot of the stuff that I do doesn't actually gain notoriety. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, when, when the, the last sale I was involved in, um, uh, but um, no one knows or knew. Need, or if you're in the industry, you knew mm. because, mm. you know, that's gossip. And if you listen to this podcast, you now know if you didn't well, know gossip's, before. Well, gossip's like buggery, right? I mean, it's <laughs> at the end of the day, um, it's, 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 and that's one of the great reasons, you know, you just... Um, um, you, you just know about all sorts of things, some of which is true. But the mo- most of what I do is actually very much off the radar. Um, and so, yeah, nothing springs to mind. If, if I had to think about it, I'm sure I could come up with examples. But from my point of view, it's actually not important about how noticed something that I've done is. It's probably better that it isn't. Yeah. and It's and, kind and, of like umpires in football. Yeah. They're they doing should, a really good job. You just don't notice. It. 100%. And, and my – it's a sort of perhaps uh, – a little bit uh, alike what I'm, my, my picture is in Tickford. I'm in the background. What I do is important to the business, but no one needs to see it. Um, I don't need anyone to see it. Mm. So, um, but if I'm involved in something that, that involves a team or a driver or a sponsor or anything to do with that, um, the people 
industry generally knows, but I don't talk about mm. it. It's I'm actually not there for the notoriety. I'm actually there because I think motorsport is a terrific business and it's a massive passion. So I'm able to allow them to intersect and then do what I do, which is a which is a really good thing about having done it for so long. I get to be able to choose what I do mm. and, and clients and people support me. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Tell me about your racing we talked before a little bit about how you got into starting to do some club stuff where mm. did it evolve from and is it it's been pretty much Porsches the whole time with the odd little deviation off to TCM Mustang and stuff like that but yeah. tell me what was the the evolution like sprints with the Porsche car club yep. um, Porsche drivers challenge which kind of was what Porsche Cup had been it was Porsche Cup previously yeah. under a new new banner yep. and then it all so, starts really rolling yeah 2005 um it all happened at Winton, actually. I was up there, uh, bought a new GD3. I'd got rid of my old older Porsche and bought a newish GD3. And, uh, it was uh, James Condurus' old Nations Cup car. Oh, I yeah, think. I remember that. Was it the, the, the grey, silver, yeah. super barn car? Yeah, that's yeah, right, well, and, yeah. which is great because I raced against him once and passed him in his old car. In his, in his new car. UK, yeah, <laughs> at Phillip Island. I still remember I passed him going through down into Honda. It was so good. Anyway, um, so how did I get in? So I was at Winton. It was a... Bleak winter's day. I was there with uh, with Ray Dick, who was uh, who was helping me out, and there was Mick Ritter testing um, Formula Fords, and he sort of stopped by and said g'day to Ray because Ray worked with him at the time. And anyway, Ray a few weeks later goes, look, um, you know, Mick's Mick's thinking about getting into it, and he thought, yeah, you seem to go all right. So I uh, went to see Mick, and um, and it was like a job interview. Um, so what do you want to do, Sven? Oh, I want to go racing. Well, it's not the right answer, you know, Mick. And, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, what are you here for? Um, and it was, well, pff, Mick, I sort of want to go faster. Yeah, but why do you want to go faster? God, seriously, I'm about to throw copious amounts of money at you if you let me drive with you. <laughs> um, and um, he goes, so try again. Oh, well, look, actually, I want to win. He goes, now we're on it. Yeah, there you and, go. Um, there you go. So, so the journey started with Mick and um, and so he and the people that he drove, that drove for him at the time uh, taught me how to drive. So I went, I did GTs for a couple of years, um, had a great amount of fun. 2007, did all right. Um, and then in 2008 when Carrera Cup um, stopped. Mm. Um, a mate of mine and I had the idea, well, there was a bit of a hole for Porsche there. Um, so we approached them um, and said, how about you do this GT3 Cup Challenge thing? Um, and look, it was completely self-interested. I needed somewhere to race. So what do you do? You create a <laughs> race series. Make a series. 100%. Yeah. And so that's what I did. Um, so I did a deal with Marty Wag because he owned the the rights and the, the category management agreement to Porsche uh, Porsche Drivers Challenge. So, and Marty was terrific about it. He knew that it wasn't a natural fit for GTs. And so we did that for three years and, and built it. We, we had the idea in January 2008. By May 2008, we had 13 cars on the grid at Malala, um, which is how I met Krause because he helped out. It's um, all his fault. It's all his fault. And um, 
So during that time, I just um, I learned how to drive. So the people that taught me how to drive, Dave, Reynolds, um, Reynolds um, Tim Blanchard, Moff, um, Slade, um, who else was there? Uh, Percat, all those guys. Um, and you know they'd come racing on the weekend, and they'd be on um, they'd be on the radio. You know, I've, I've great memories of of Moff talking to me on the radio, saying uh, Mick needs says you need to go faster, mate. And I go, well, I'm giving it everything I can. He says, well, I don't think he believes that, so better go faster. <laughs> I'm guessing there were some other words in among there. Oh, uh, there were some glorious experiences <laughs> with Mick. Um, uh, Mick is one of the most accomplished. Uh, psychologists on earth, in my view. Um, he just doesn't have a degree. He yeah. doesn't have a degree. And so I learned everything I, I know about. I actually watched him, how he ran his race team. That was a big education. So how did I get into motorsport? I saw how Mick ran a race team and, and how he dealt with his drivers and, and how it all worked. And being a category owner for the, the Sprint Challenge or Cup Challenge, as it was, um, gave me a first-hand experience. So... Um, so the journey with Porsche was always there, and again, it comes back to Mum stealing her boss's Porsche back in the no, late no, 60s. Borrowing, yeah, she, borrowing, she completely misled him, um, <laughs> lied her guts out, um, I should say. So um, I had the, I had, I had, uh, I had the fun of being taught how to drive. So, for instance, you know, I'd, I'd, my data would be laid over with Dave's, and my objective was to try and get within a second and a half of his times, so wherever it was. I had one memorable time at Bathurst where I was really good up in sector one, pretty much only a tenth off him. I was fantastic, about two tenths in sector three, and I was the lazy eight seconds <laughs> off in Over sector the top. two. Funny that, Aaron. Yeah, yeah. I, so for segment one, up the hill. Sector <laughs> three, down the hill. Yep. Sector two, across the hill. 100%. And, right. and it, it, it got me to understand that I've got an incredibly talented right foot, but no balls. Well, so eight seconds worth is no, it's massive. But um, um, so yeah, it's been Porsches and then through Cup cars, um, and then I then I stopped and did historics. So I bought an old Porsche, and made it go fast, and did historic racing for a few years. And now I've, I've bought myself a, a an old two thousand and two or two thousand four RSA Le Mans car, which well, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Well, uh, it, it raced in Le Mans twenty four hours. No, it's a Le Mans spec car, but it's raced at Sebring in the, Monza. In the series of, of and, those races, yeah, yeah. It, it, it was owned by a bloke like me, so you know, had the ability to buy one, probably not the ability to drive one. Um, so it had some good drivers at the start, but it's it's a it's a very cool car, very hard to drive, makes all the right noises, so. Uh, I bought it because I, I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll do when I'll put it in a container and mm. have a holiday and yeah. bring a mate over and race over there in the historics that they can do. But And I've just recently bought a, a 2009 Cup S, which is a bit of a weapon. So oh, so they, they were the Australian GT sort of car choice, weren't they? In like 09, 10 sort of David Wall had one. And, yeah, Max Twig. Yeah. Actually, the car that I bought is Maxi Twigs that won the Grand Prix in 2010. That's not the one that launched off the back of Peter Hackett in that no. Lambo, was it? A different the, off, one. Off the start line? At, no, at Sandown. Uh not according to the logbook, but I'll check it now. Aaron, because, <laughs> sorry, sorry um, to bring that. No, I, it's only in my brain because we <laughs> ran that video on our socials about a month and a half ago. Of uh, I think it was Sandown 2010 because I remember it because I was commentating it. First lap of the GT race at Sandown, into turn two, Peter Hackett is in the Lamborghini 
Twiggy's in his Porsche and he goes over the back of this Lamborghini. Oh, dear. That so was, I'm hoping for your sake it's a different car just look, quietly. I had it looked at. Um, the I'm sure it's a good nickname. Yeah, well, you know what the logbooks say. They never yeah, they, lie. They tell all the story, don't they? <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. I'm really glad we spoke, Aaron. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, that's the car. And um, uh, so I'll be, I do state race series now. Um, I don't have uh, – I don't – I went and raced nationally for a long time. And then the Touring Car Masters thing was a great fun thing. I'm, I'm great mates with Chris Stilwell, who's now the chairman of Tickford. Mm. Um, so, Chris, uh, it was a year when I think you could you could share the car. And you both got the points and towards the title. we both got the, the title, points towards yeah. the title. And so Chris rings me up and says, look, I'm going to do a bit of travelling this year. I'm going to race in, in the States. So do you want to share the car? And I said, uh, am I paying? He goes, no. I said, well, of course I'll drive. <laughs> and I'm in. <laughs> and so we, uh, we we shared that and had a good result. We won, I think, the, the um, Pro Sport, I think. Or, I think that's what I think it was, it was called, Pro Sport. Yeah, yeah. And that was good fun. Um, yeah, launching that thing down, Conrod, uh, the first time was oh, very character building because, you know, a couple of Hail Marys through the chase and then pulling it up um, with, you know, brakes the size of dessert plates and, mm. you know, a, Let's just say I used a lot of engine braking pulling that old girl up. But, um, um, but so that and that was great fun actually. I, I, I was actually quite curious to see whether or not I could drive something other than a Porsche half reasonably, and it turns out I could. Um, Is it, it was, the only thing you've done non Porsche? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I couldn't think of anything else. No, no. I, look, I, if I if I do something else, I might do it not well, and so <laughs> just stick to what I know, Aaron. <laughs> Stick to what your weakness is. Porsches are your thing. Yeah. It would yeah. be worried if you suddenly appeared in something else with your thing. What's going on here? This is, oh, this is a little strange. Yeah, you know, you, you know experimentation's all right, but, you know, you've just got to stick with what you know. It, it is, it's probably being lazy in my racing that I haven't looked at other things, but I know them, you know. I got to the point where uh, because as you race you have a lot of accidents at times when, you know. Do and you? They're never of your own doing. <laughs> but I got to the point where I could actually quote the repair bill about two minutes after I looked at it, particularly off the pit wall. So um, <laughs> that's not a good no. that's not a good skill set to have acquired. No, well, we wrote that silver car off at Simmons Plains in two thousand and seven, um, and um, <laughs> I got turned around and bounced off the arm car in the wall, and you know it was a classic race, a classic footage with a wheel rolling down the the. The, uh, the road and I got out and it was on its guts and the front was stove into the firewall. The back did not resemble a car. And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm still connected. I connected myself back to the radio because Mick's yelling at me, oh, what, what the, where are you, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I've had a bit of a moment after turn three. I don't think it'll polish out. And, oh, boy, we had to drag that thing back into the transporter. But, mm-hmm. um, but it's, yeah, so it's an example. I just know the cars and I enjoy the cars and... Yeah, they're pretty tricky to drive, so when you get it right, it's very satisfying. I love your Porsche. We call it sort of the IROC Porsche, the one that you did a bit of TCM yeah. in, where you were taking it up to the to the V8s. I think that's my favourite Porsche of that era that you you've raised. Is that one of your favourites? Yeah, it is absolutely. I just sold that car actually. Um, uh, because it was going to sit in the corner and do nothing, and that was not right for that car. So, are we going to see it back? No, it's in New somewhere? Zealand. Oh no! Yeah, it's you in let New them Zealand. get one. Oh. Well, I bought my Cup S out of New Zealand, so I took one and gave one back. But, oh, it's, um, okay, it's not bad. But, but uh, no, that that is a fun car, and 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 the reason I, I mean, I could have gone and got a TCM car, but uh, I enjoyed, you know, particularly on the short tracks. You know, I enjoyed bringing it up to them and driving fast. So, you know, at Winton it was always mm. I could end up qualifying P5 at best and scaring the shit out of them and, 
um, you know, all those being scared, the start of a TCM race when you're surrounded by 24 cars with 700 horsepower and you are about a foot and a half lower than them and they don't look where they are going other than forward, like it was, that's just terrifying. <laughs> the, 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 the flag goes down and the noise goes up and I'm just shitting a brick <laughs> and waiting to get hit. But luckily I'm always at the back. So the, the, you oh, know, you are not always yeah, well, at the mostly, back. Mostly, mostly. But, um, um, yeah, so the IROC car is fantastic. It's a very cool 70s wide body, loud. It's sort of the quintessential um, poster Porsche mm. uh, for, for people of my vintage growing up. And so I enjoyed developing that car and spending much more money on it than I should. But in, in, actually, again, sort of tying it back to what I do, it's important, I think, also for, important for me for credibility to not just be working on an industry but also still competing. Mm. So, and I, and I, and I, I like the fact that I'm still racing and the, to the odd national meeting and the, the guys in the, in the race team see me hanging around and give them a bit of a wave as I go past and, you know, it's, it's, it's not right. He never comes and watches me race, but that's okay. <laughs> we, we've, we've, we're still working on that. Um, one day, one yeah, day. He looks at Nats off but only the next day and goes, oh, well done, mate. Like, seriously, how about on the day? You know, um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's camaraderie. That's camaraderie. Yeah, Rod's a great bloke. Uh, what's your standout race win? Or I know you won the, the GT3 Cup Challenge, which is now the Sprint Challenge for those wondering, yeah. which I think we've, we've referenced. You got a favourite race? That you won. Didn't, didn't you win one of those GT one hour races up at Ipswich with Reynolds? That, was it, that, that is that the it? one. No, so um, that was the, the in two thousand six the GT Endurance Championship, and there were three. So the three one hour, oh yeah, th- three yeah. one hour. Um, I don't know, was it that year? I think that they we had a five hundred k race at the end of the year. At Sandown. Yeah, at Sandown. Well, it might have been 07. I that might have been 07, yeah. It was around that But anyway, time. I yeah. did that. So Reynolds and I shared at the island um, and – And this was in a GD3 Cup. No, this was in my silver thing that, yeah, I, right. that I tailed yeah. up. So yeah. it must have been 2006. Uh, it must have been 2000. Anyway. Yes, 2000-something. It, it was 2006 because I wrecked the car in 2007. So anyway, we did this. So, yes, the Ipswich race – was my absolute favourite because um, it was actually Reynolds was at Sandown doing Carrera Cup down with with Mick and I was up there with Ray, Ray Dick, who I spoke about earlier. So went up there with Ray and a couple of mates. That's sort of how we did it and it was all properly done. Um, And so we did the race and Cricky was there and his Viper and there was Ferraris and all sorts of corruption hanging around and... um, (laughs) Uh, Spoken like such a Porsche fan. Oh, the word Ferrari gets mentioned. And, yeah, but uh, very much in low tones. No, I think they're a great car for those that love them. And um, <laughs> um, But so I, I, I don't know where I qualified, to be honest. It's somewhere, somewhere. And so we had a bit of a plan and Ray was really good. He said, right, we're coming in at 39 minutes and I'm putting down, tyres down the working side. Yeah, cool, no worries, Ray. So I'm racing around. It was a pretty hot day, as it was in Queensland, and um, – but what happened early was Cricky blew a rear tyre. So he was like three laps down. I thought, oh, beauty, I've made up a spot, you know, pure racer. Yeah, don't, do it on the, don't do it on the track. Watch someone else's <laughs> misfortune. And um, But anyway, a few things happened. And um, it got to the 39-minute mark, came in, put the working side on. Um, I think it was fourth because some people had pitted, popped back out in sixth and um, and then went for it. And by that stage, the people in front of me were Bryce Washington, 
the two Conduras boys, and one other. And anyway, I was picking them off. Um, and I and I it was the only time in my life that I properly hydrated, so I started drinking lots of water on Thursday, whereas some others thought that you know a litre three hours before the race was a great way to hydrate. And there were people that came off and literally went on drips. If the race was on Tuesday, maybe that was hundred percent. But, yeah. but they um, but the people came off that on drips like the, anyway they came off on drips when we were in the in in Park for May. So anyway, I banged around and I was pulling moves on turn three, and and Ray was great. Says so, yeah. Uh, just, just quietly be decisive, fan, blah, blah. Apparently off, it, off the radio was, fuck it, jeez, don't do that, not there. And, but nice ones, fan, on the radio to me. And anyway, I, I passed them with, I don't know, seven laps to go. And, of course, at that point the car made every noise that was never there that I heard. So I thought the gearbox was breaking, I'd lost brakes, you know, looked at the fuel gauge, I was going to run out. And Ray's just going, just drive the bloody thing, eyes forward, I'll tell you if there's anything behind. So the last two laps were great fun. And I remember, this is one of the most wonderful things that Ray's, anyone has ever said to me over the radio, coming down through turn six, he says, Sven, look up, look at the flag and remember this, you've just won a national level race. And so that's my favourite race. Because I was there with Ray and who was there with me right at the start, uh, but also just the, that that's... That's, to me, the sentiment of racing. Mm. Look up. You've won something really cool. Remember it and enjoy it. Mm. And, and I can tell you that it doesn't matter if you're a Formula One driver or you're doing a club thing, the feeling to that driver and to that team and the people who support them is exactly the same. I see it when I'm in the pits at Tickford. I see it when I see it on the telly with other teams. That raw enthusiasm, passion, joy is part of motorsport mm. and that's what makes it special. Like any sport, I suppose. Did Mick give you an accolade that weekend or not? Because if oh. he didn't give you one, then he's never going to give you one. So here's how it went. All right, here we go. <laughs> so, so we're at, he's down at he's down at Sandown. We've got the result. All right, guys, we've got to call Mick, and um, we'd we'd heard that David won, um, and um, so we rang Mick up. We're on speaker, and uh, how'd you go? Yeah, yeah, did all right. Yeah, we won. Silence. Bullshit. <laughs> No, 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 we did. Don't don't bullshit me. And um, uh, he said, no, no, Mick, we won. He goes, uh, dropped the F-bomb a few times. Um, but, yeah, he was pleased. Um, Mick's a sort of bloke, and those that have raced with him or know him, uh, if you get a good job out of him that's at the big. end of a race, that's huge. Mm. That is huge. Um, and there's some cracker lines. So I think you might have seen that YouTube video back in the day when all the drivers were talking about Mick and – um, and he's driver coaching and he'd sort of stick his head in and you, you, the steam and corruption coming out of your car and you think you're doing a good job and he opens the door and he looks and goes, uh, what are you doing? Uh, look, seriously, mate, how hard can it be? You pee nowhere, get out there and do it again. Like, that's Mick the psychologist. Mental management oh, 101. 100%. <laughs> and, he, and the lies that they tell you over the radio, uh, you're two seconds behind when you're like a second in front. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so don't slow down because someone's coming and I'll lie to you. That's so. Yeah, yeah. lies in motorsport. Who'd have thought? Uh, shock <laughs> horror. Holy heck. Holy heck. Uh, we talk about Porsches. What's your What's your favourite? Um, my favourite Porsche mm. is a 1973 911e, which was the first one that I did up, and my kids grew up in the back of it. Mm. So it's got the best memories um, of of my Porsches. But the my favourite race car. Um, I'd say it's the RSR mm. just because, you know, 
Porsche looked at it and go, let's just bolt really wide guards on it, stuff the biggest motor we can in it. Like it's just as a car, it. it's an eleven out of ten in the uh, in the scheme of things. It's just big and ugly and fast and raw. So. Um, yeah, I like it when it's a bit hard to drive, but the, the true Porsche is the most 73, which the kids were mm. in and still now cannot get in the back of. <laughs> I know. We worried if they could fit. Yeah. Um, one of our um, friends is the motorsporttrader.com. They deal in all sorts of motorsport memorabilia and, and bits and pieces. This is the way that we segue into the next part of this, but if you're interested <laughs> to our listeners, head to their website, uh, website themotorsporttrader.com. Are you a memorabilia keeper? Have you got something cool or some things cool that you keep or that you've got tucked away or that you you've, you keep an eye out for or you're not really a collector? I always like no. to ask this of anyone I sit down with. I, I, I don't. Um, I don't do that. Uh, you know, I've got my trophies, which is nice, but they're sort of back on a shelf. But, no, I'm, I'm not a mem- memorabilia collector. Um, I take a pretty workmanlike approach to motorsport stuff and it's a tool. For mm. me, so yep. you know, some people want to buy a certain race car driver's helmet. I've got a helmet, <laughs> and I've got an old one, and so I've got. I keep my old helmets. I'd say that, but it's not memorabilia. That's just me. Um, it's got to go somewhere. It's got to go somewhere. Mm. Um, but no, I don't do memorabilia at all. But I think it, they're great things because they also every bit of memorabilia comes with a story, mm. and it's actually the story that's more important than the item itself. Most of the time in my experience that's, that's, that's exactly the case. Where, where it was found, how it got to be, where it ended up being. Yep. Someone was going to throw it out, kept it, went through 9,000 different people's hands, yep. all that sort of stuff. And it's, here it is. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. pretty cool. It tells its own story. That's it. Um, we've got a couple of National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions from right. our listeners okay. and our social readers. You're looking at me like this could – normally <laughs> – our guests have had a look at these on socials before. I don't do socials. You see. Well, that's good because you can't preempt anything. No, there, so no, I can I can barely work my messages. So <laughs> yeah. fire away, all clear. Uh, Liam Briggs, when we did the call out, he asked he wanted to know about the Tickford Road Car business. Of course, Tickford Racing's the the supercars team that we've we've discussed at length. But what was the process in bringing Tickford back to the automotive market in Australia? Um, and how did you get the rights to the Tickford name he's, he's interested in? So um, I'll start with the rights. Well, we were looking for, we were looking for, so why to go auto? Because um, it was something that FBR had done and done very well. And there was a hole in the market. We thought that vehicle enhancement, and we think that vehicle enhancement is really important. So FPR done a very good job on it, and a lot of FPR people are still there. So it was also a natural extension of trying to diversify the Tickford business. Um, so uh, we had a chat uh, amongst ourselves and identified well, Mustang in particular was coming up, um, but the Ranger, which is a terrific car, um, and, and other Ford products. So we thought vehicle enhancement is good, and we've Oh, we've done nearly 4,000 cars on the journey now. Um, and uh, so it was, an, it was a, an extension of the race team um, and a, a way also to promote the brand. And so Tickford, we had ProDrive, uh, which is obviously well known, but we wanted something of our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'd paid ProDrive to use the name. But Tickford, we did a little bit of a workshop and it came up as an old Ford name. Um, so being the lawyer, I did a trademark search. And back when Ford had decided to shrink its operations, they'd basically let go of all their trademarks. So oh. I saw the Tickford one and it was well known. So I thought, hmm, I'll buy that. I'll, I'll register it because it was deregistered. And so that's how we got it. 
Mm. It was. It came up as part of the workshop, you know, the old butcher's paper and stuff. Um, but it was. It was opportunistic because I, I couldn't believe that it was still there, able to be um, appropriated, and we got it. Mm. And, and we. So with these things, if people let something lapse, anyone can go and grab it. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Oh, look, you, there are there will be restrictions, particularly if you if it's still closely aligned with somebody else's product. You you can't really allow yourself to have the mark confused. But mm. but yes, theoretically, uh, a lapsed mark can be picked up by someone else. Lucky I registered V8 Sleuth all those years ago. Oh too. yeah, no, mm. look, I'm, I'm sure it. it was somewhere in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was about three. Yeah. Um, Stuart Rutherford's got an interesting question too. Um, why did Tickford keep with the four car program? Um, and the best he feels the best performing teams have too. What's the theory? Because you guys have had that for, for quite a long time over the journey. Yeah, I think it depends what you talk about, uh, how you define performance, right? So a, a race team's got to perform, obviously, on the track. Um, and um, But equally, it's got to perform off the track. And uh, it's a function of the infrastructure that we had. We've actually modelled and we have modelled a two-car team um, and with our infrastructure and what we have, it's actually a backward step because from a business point of view, um, you can apply economies of scale across four cars. The other thing is from a team's championship point of view, more cars equals more opportunity to accumulate points. Um, the other thing is uh, we've got sponsors that want to be associated with us. And so um, as, a, as a business, you have to give them the high-speed billboard and all the things that, that, that go with it. So. Um, we've explored at smaller teams. I think um, so. Performance is also off-track financial viability. And sure, you look at you look at the teams um, that we're currently racing against, and they're doing they're doing great things. But frankly, so are we. Mm. You know, just you look at last weekend, just gone. Um, we had had some terrible luck. Um, you know, poor old JC got punted. But you know, your Cam outstanding running, but Jake is sticky. I mean, what a great story that is. Fast um, in Darwin, got in the shootout. Like, seriously, yeah. it was, was absolutely killing a pig. And you don't actually get the opportunity to uh, accommodate younger drivers in a narrower team. And that's why we run Super 2 as well, because mm. it's always a great, you know, we had we had, uh, we had the Super 2 Zach you know, there on the weekend and you know, did what he did, but um, that he was there to learn. So we we look at our business more holistically than... You know, what's the most efficient way to win races? We absolutely do that, everything that we do. And all those four cars are all the same, pretty much. You know, the engineers tune them and make them adjust to what they think. But a four-car team is viable and important um, for the way in which we want to run the business. And it gives us more opportunity to win. Mm. And winning is good. Winning is good. Mm. Winning is good. Mm. feels great. <laughs> Just quickly before we wrap up, yep. Gen 3, the future of supercars, how do you, you know, you've, you've got skin in the game. Yep. How do you feel? I mean, there's been an ownership change as well. Yep. Are you buoyant about the future? What are the challenges that, that lie ahead in the next 12 to 24 months? The first challenge is actually building the bloody things because mm. um, just as we went through with Blueprint and Car of the Future, every time there's a change of the underlying car, there's a lot of disruption and uh, particularly in our business, but everyone who runs current cars is in the same thing. They're, they're having to race a car, yeah. but they're also having to build and develop or access and, and buy a car, um, if that's the sort of team you are. So the main challenge now is getting these things built 
and it's a massive financial challenge. Um, and supercars, the new owners have come to the party and done really great things to support the teams. Um, there's a lot of angst about will it get done in time? The answer is race teams always get it done. Always find a way. Yeah, I mean, you look at JC's car on the weekend. You, you would, you no way I thought you, that you thing was going to You would have dug a deep race. hole, shoved it in and backfilled it. But an hour and a half later, it was back racing. You know, it wasn't the best race car on earth. And as Tim said, it looked pretty ugly underneath. But um, so a race team's ability to get stuff done, particularly ours, I know our guys, they'll be tired as all get out. They'll be burning the mid oil. There'll be spanners flying around this workshop, but they'll get them built. Um, I think that Gen 3 conceptually is a really good thing um, because it also does things like control costs, uh, which are rampant and out of control. Um, uh, and, and it's, you know, it is a bit of economic warfare, which which is a challenge because it prevents people from coming into the competition as easily as they could. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that the other good thing about Gen 3 is it will make the drivers shine. Uh, it will show who a little bit more um, because that does come down to gear um, and we've got good gear and a few people have They've all got good gear. It's just how they make them go fast. So I think there's that. I think control engines... Um, you know, create engines and all the spec stuff. I mean, there's a lot of spec stuff on the current cars. There is, but you know, they're 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 difficult to build, um, difficult to maintain. If you saw underneath our cars to make them sh- fit onto the current substructure, the amount of bracketry and other stuff that all goes. So mm. it's an all easier, the fiddly stuff. It's easier car to make, easier car to maintain. Um, but the, so the main challenge, I don't think um, acceptance by the market's going to be a problem. They're going to sound good. They look great. Um, they will be fast. The aero, as I think, I think Frosty and even JC said, it'll suit those drivers of, of more experience um, because they're going to be a more mechanically grip car mm. than they are now, which is a fair bit of aero involved. So I think it'll it'll make for a good show. Uh, the new owners of supercars are terrific. I think um, that that is really bright. Uh, certainly, Rod and I's our view is that. Um, the future of supercars couldn't be better right now. It's probably the best place it's in to go forward. Look forward to seeing how yeah. it all goes forward and how many more races Tickford can get up to. You're not far off 100. You're getting closer. You're mm. getting closer. There's cupcakes ahead for yes. 100 wins. Or bottles. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Either or. There's a party of, of some yeah. kind. Sven, great to sit down. Thank you so much for the, the insight into to what you do, your involvement with Tickford, with the, the Porsche stuff, um, some great stories in there. And um, do, do I get billed by the six-minute block for this podcast or how does this work? Well, look, you haven't got anything on with me at the moment, but I do keep a note. So, <laughs> you know, when you do come back, uh, no, no, I've, I've, I've enjoyed the time. If there's anything I enjoy is talking about myself and um, this would give me a great opportunity. Goal achieved. Just here to help. Thanks, Beautiful. Sven. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. There you have it, Sven Burkhartz. Now you know a little bit more about the co-owner of Tickford Racing. And I should point out too, we did this chat in the week after Darwin. So some of those references about this weekend and so on with Zach Best, uh, that was referring to, to Hidden Valley Darwin because that was the week in which we were certainly speaking. Now before I go, um, a thing that Sven is heavily involved in, I want to mention this because it's pretty cool, uh, Stuttfest. It's an all-things Porsche motoring festival. It's at Winton, August 26 to 28. Visit the website Stuttfest. .com.au for some more details. If you love your Porsches, that's going to be a really cool event with racing on track, car displays, uh, plenty of stuff. It's going to be really good. If you like Porsches, it's something that you need to get along to. Well, that's us done. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Don't forget you can like, subscribe, and review 
our work wherever that you think you need to do it, wherever you listen to it, wherever you want to provide it, we love to hear from you. Uh, next week on the V8 Sleuth podcast, I've got a really special guest. He is the host of the biggest, most listened to uh, sports podcast in Australia, Mark Howard. Uh, Howie, of course, the Howie Games, uh, long-time motorsport guy to work with Network 10 in the 2000s with Trackside and their V8 Supercar Telecast. A lot of people don't know that Howie's whole sporting media career, which, by the way, now is booting goals with Fox with its cricket and AFL coverage, uh, began as a rigger for Formula One, for Formula One management at Grand Prix in uh, the late 90s. So uh, it's a great chat. I really thoroughly enjoyed catching up with Howie. That's my guest and episode next Wednesday on the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. Uh, of course, every Tuesday, the Castrol Motorsport News podcast with Stefan Bartholomew and Andrew Van Leeuwen with all the latest and greatest of news, notes and quotes. And of course, Repco Supercars Weekly every Thursday or Friday. Tune in for it. That's why you need to subscribe. So we don't know every week what day that's going to roll out. Depends on the news, depends on what's happening around the place. But if you subscribe via Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, you get the notification so you'll always know when the next episode will be. Anyway, that's me done. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. I'm Aaron Noonan and I'll chat to you again next week.